0: Georgia, Russia's neighbor
1: to the south, be next on President Putin's list. Please, President Biden, finish your job just to get out from these Russian oligarchs who are trying to undermine democracy. For Saturday, April 15th, this is All Things Considered.
0: I'm Melissa Nadborny. Two feet of rain in one day? Fort Lauderdale is a magnet for sun seekers, but this week's deluge could be a
2: tipping point. There are a few of them that are kind of done, and they will be putting their houses on the market.
0: And 10 years after the horror of the Boston Marathon bombing, some of the survivors will be back to race again on Monday.
3: Getting
2: out there for me doing the
3: run helps me accept things that really aren't acceptable.
4: All that after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In Washington, D.C.
5: Are we, back down? Are we
4: gonna back down? Competing rallies outside the Supreme Court today, after the court issued a temporary stay of a Texas court ruling that banned the abortion drug mifepristone. Kate Scarborough, a freshman at Georgetown University, says this isn't just a social issue.
6: Having a child is the biggest decision a woman will ever make in her entire life. So I'm fighting for my economic freedom along with my body.
4: Meanwhile, the Biden administration says it will fight to keep the drug on the market. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. The White House says it will continue to stand by the FDA's evidence-based approval of mifepristone and continue to support the FDA's authority to review, approve, and regulate a wide range of prescription drugs. The White House added that the stakes of the fight couldn't be higher in the face of ongoing attacks on reproductive rights. The Biden administration and the manufacturer of mifepristone had asked the high court to intervene. So for now, the pill remains available nationwide. In Piers, Windsor Johnston, Sudan's military and a powerful paramilitary force, the RSF, are engaged in fierce fighting in the capital and elsewhere in the country. The RSF claims to have taken control of the presidential palace and the airport. And Piers, Emmanuel Akinwotu has more.
0: After months of mounting tensions, people in Sudan's capital Khartoum walked to gunshots and fierce fighting between the RSF
7: and Sudan's military. The RSF now say they have seized control over the presidency, the residence of the army chief and three airports, plunging the country into further turmoil. Both forces have accused each other of instigating the ongoing fighting, with air force jets flying over Khartoum and armoured vehicles speeding through the streets. The sudden conflict follows a power struggle over which force will lead a fragile transition to democracy that now appears in further jeopardy. Emmanuel Akimwotu, NPR
5: News, Lagos.
4: A new study by Ukrainian researchers finds a 50 percent drop in childhood vaccinations in the war-torn region of Kharkiv. And Ritu Chatterjee has more.
1: The researchers say the war has disrupted routine vaccinations and access to medical care. Between January and September of 2022, vaccination rates for measles, mumps, rubella fell by 50% in the Kharkiv region. Vaccination rates for diphtheria, whooping cough and tetanus fell by 46% and polio vaccinations fell by 40%. While the overall number of infectious diseases registered for the region fell during this time, cases of viral meningitis, hepatitis A, rubella and whooping cough were far higher than the national average. But the researchers think that many infections went
4: undetected last year because access to care was disrupted. Read the strategy Pierre News. And you're listening to NPR News from
8: Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Thousands jammed onto Boylston Street this afternoon to mark the exact time 10 years ago that two bombs exploded near the Boston Marathon finish line. Church bells tolled and then a tribute from the Boston City Singers and Boston Pops. This morning, Mayor Wu and Governor Healy joined families who lost loved ones to lay a wreath at the memorial site. Across the city, people have been taking part in one Boston Day by giving blood and helping clean up a beach in Dorchester. That's just a couple of the dozens of public service projects to show the city's resilience and unity. Those planning to run in Monday's marathon, like Amy Korff from Florida, say they're thinking of the victims.
9: Anytime you come through Boston, as you think about the people who, who were hurt during that whole thing and how they've triumphed, a lot of those people have really
10: triumphed.
8: Brian Kinghorn from Scotland has strong feelings about running, but especially on this anniversary.
10: You can feel yourself getting quite emotional when they talk about the whole thing, but then, when they, especially when they add in the anniversary of the, you know, the incident here, it is, yeah, it's quite an emotional experience for everyone all over the world, I think.
8: The one hundred twenty-seventh running of the Boston Marathon takes place on Monday. Old North Church in the North End is marking its three hundredth anniversary. On this date, in seventeen twenty-three, the cornerstone was put in place. Nikki Stewart oversees the preservation of the church.
10: You can feel yourself getting quite emotional. We're funded by when you talk about the whole thing, but then when especially when they add in the anniversary of the you know the incident here, it is yeah, it's quite an emotional experience for everyone all over the world, I think.
8: The Old North Church is Boston's oldest standing church building. And now our forecast, a chance of showers overnight and a low near 50, a slight chance of rain tomorrow, cloudy, mid-50s, and showers likely Monday for the marathon and a high near 60. It's 56 degrees in Boston at 5.06.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
0: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Adworney. This week saw the arrest and arraignment of the man allegedly behind one of the worst leaks of top-secret U.S. military documents in recent years.
10: Charged with two counts under the Espionage Act, and facing 15 years if convicted. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira had top-secret clearance as an IT specialist with the Massachusetts Air National Guard. Court records detail how prosecutors say he handled the documents, alleging he eventually took them home to photograph them.
0: Despite revelations in the documents that the US spies on allies like South Korea and Ukraine, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said today that the leak has not affected America's cooperation with its allies. To unpack that and talk about the ramifications of this leak on a global scale, we turn to NPR's Joanna Kakissis in Kyiv. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Alyssa. So remind us. What revelations about Ukraine
12: are in these leaked documents? There are details about what weapons the West has delivered to Ukraine and how the West is training Ukrainian soldiers. There are bleak assessments of the war by U.S. officials that Ukraine doesn't have enough troops or equipment or ammunition and that it won't be able to take back land in a counteroffensive sometime this spring. Uh, There's been lots of speculation that the Ukrainian troops will try to reclaim land in the south, like the occupied city of Melitopol.
0: What's been the latest reaction by officials and kind of the consequences of the leaks where you are in Ukraine?
12: So those in the military and those close to President Volodymyr Zelensky tell us that there are no major consequences Mm. and that most of the revelations in the security breach were already well known. We spoke to Yuri Ikhdat, who is the spokesman for Ukraine's Air Force, and he actually said the publicity of these leaks have actually given Ukrainians yet another opportunity to remind their Western partners that they do need ammunition to keep their air defense working, for example. Mr. Ikhdat told us what that was. Would
13: mean
7: We cannot lose control of our airspace, to Russians.
13: If that happens, we will
7: have another Mariupol. We need to strengthen not only air defense systems, but also use F-16 as part of the air defense. I want to assure you that when Ukraine receives F-16s, even just a few of them, that will be enough to gain air superiority.
12: So Mariupol, by the way, which Irnat referenced, uh, is a city in the south that the Russians absolutely pulverized with airstrikes at the beginning of the war and the death and destruction was just staggering. Alyssa, I should note, though, that despite the leaks and the concerns, the West is still showing very strong support for Ukraine. According to Ukraine's prime minister, Denis Shmihal, G7 nations just promised another five billion dollars in aid. Hmm. So what is actually happening on the front lines now? So, you know, the front lines really haven't moved since November when Ukraine recaptured the southern city of Kherson. Most of the fighting right now is happening in the east around the absolutely devastated city of Bakhmut. That fight has been going on for a long time with heavy losses on both sides and only incremental gains uh, by the Russians, though they are moving towards taking the city. Mm. And, then you know, the counteroffensive we've talked about, it's clear the Russians are preparing for it. Satellite images show Russian troops Fortifying the area around the occupied city of Molotovol and the peninsula of Crimea, which Russia occupied back in 2014. So it's Ukrainian Orthodox Easter. Mm -hmm. How are people
0: there feeling as yet another holiday goes by and and they're still at war?
12: So the Ukrainians like to describe themselves as unbreakable because they see no other option for themselves but getting all their territory back and being once again the the whole nation they were before. And you know, and this weekend churches are holding these beautiful services ahead of Easter Sunday tomorrow. Orthodox Easter is really special for Ukrainian families. You know, they decorate eggs and make Easter bread together. And so many families have lost loved ones in this war and they've been separated by this war. And we met one of these families in a lively square in central Kiev. Yana, uh, her husband Oleg, and their young son Yaroslav recently fled the occupied city in the Zaporizhia region. Yana says, you know, it's their first Easter away from her mother. Uh, she's trapped in the city of Enerhodar, and, you know, the family will be scaling back celebrations this year. Oh. Next year, though, she says, she is very confident that the counteroffensive will be successful and that she will celebrate in her liberated hometown with her family reunited. That's NPR's Joanna Kakissis in Kyiv.
0: Thanks so much, Joanna.
12: You're welcome, Melissa. As Russia's ground war
0: in Ukraine continues, one analyst warns that there's another country that's vulnerable to Vladimir Putin's ambitions, Georgia. The country has had a long relationship with Russia, including in 2008 when Russia invaded Georgia. There are fears it is now sliding towards authoritarianism and that the country's leadership is cozying up to the Kremlin. I spoke about this with Nino Ivangitsa, she's the executive director of the Economic Policy Research Center, which is a think tank that does research on the Georgian economy. And she recently wrote about Russia's growing influence in Georgia for foreign affairs. We began by talking about what she says is a big divide between the people of Georgia
1: and its government. 85% of the Georgian population feels and thinks that the war in Ukraine is their war, you know, and the 4000 Georgians are fighting there to help the Ukrainians and already 42 Georgians died there and we are number 2 country after the Ukrainians with the casualties you know because every Georgian believes that the war in Ukraine is their war and we have to stand with our Ukrainian friends and the Georgia was the first country where this big like you know the Uh, demonstration to support the Ukraine started. And the current Georgian government, they do not represent the will of the Georgian people because they do not represent the Georgian people anymore. Because, you know, if before the war in Ukraine, they were somehow navigating or being in this gray zone and lying to the European partners that, oh, we are the Europeans, And you know that uh, we have these European aspirations and internally inside of the country doing everything to big sliding from our democratic development. Let's talk about
0: Georgian Dream, a populist party that's gained a lot of power in Georgia. You say that the party has has been pivotal in the country's slide towards authoritarianism. Could
1: you tell us what the party stands for and, and how much power they have there? They have in the parliament constitutional majority in the into the parliament. All these members of the parliament, they are like connected with the corrupt connection with this oligarch Pizzina Ivanishvili and the whatever message box they are delivering in the morning, they're all like, you know, the... Um, political party members from the Georgian Dream government, they are just like repeating the, It's even not changing any words in a sentence. You know, it's, it's uh, well organized, <laughs> some kind of like, you know, the political group uh, who together with this Russian oligarch just to capture the state, you know, because all institutions including the Judiciary System, Prosecutor's Office, Election Commission, you know, all of them are under their control. The party Georgian Dream. Who is the founder and why is he so important? The founder is this Russian oligarch, Bidzina Ivanishvili. He founded this party in 2012. And then he was a prime minister of Georgia uh, in 2012 and 13. And then he left this party and then he was a chairman of this party for three more years. And now he went to the shadow, but he's still in politics, you know. <laughs> he's a, like a, this kind, very close to the Russian, like, you know, the Kremlin. And even from the very high level Russian officials, like a uh, minister of foreign affairs of Russia, Lavrov and some other people, high level officials, they're getting the credits. Look at Georgia, how they are behaving they're not giving up of the west uh, like a pressure and this kind of like you know the uh, you know the statements from the russia and at uh, the same time the current georgian dream government uh, and the party they're doing everything to sabotage their own country not to get the european union membership like you know candidacy status and if we miss this opportunity right now then I don't know, we're going to be forever, we'll stay on the Russian, uh, like a sphere of influence. And uh, it's going to be very tough. And it will take many, many years to get get out from this like orbit then again. So if you were advising President Biden, what would you tell him he should do? I would love to tell him to sanction the Russian oligarch Bidzina Ivanishvili and his close circles who are in the government of Georgia. Not the sanctions against the country, because uh, as I mentioned, the people are different and people are dedicated, motivated and ready to fight for their freedom. But this uh, Russian oligarch Bidzina Ivanishvili and his uh, close surroundings who are in the government of Georgia. Please, President Biden, finish your job just to get out from this Russian oligarchs who are trying to undermine democracy and who are trying everything to get the, the freedom and the values and the democratic values from their own people, you know. They have to stop them for sure. Because it's not only threat for the Georgian society or the Ukrainian society or the Russian society, it's threat... Uh, for all democratic and liberal world, you know, they're threatening and they're bullying everybody and they have to stop. Nino Evgenitsa is the
0: executive director of the Economic Policy Research Center. You can check out her piece titled Russia is Winning in Georgia. America needs to get tough on Tbilisi in Foreign Affairs magazine. Nino, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much having me. Thanks a lot. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gore Place and the 36th Annual Sheep Shearing Festival. Sheep shearing and herding demos, fiber artists and more, April 22nd in Waltham, goreplace.org. And Native Plant Trust, welcoming spring at Garden in the Woods in Framingham, opens tomorrow. The beauty of native plants in a dramatic landscape. Information at nativeplanttrust.org.
8: Lend us your ears anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want, download or update in your app store now. 53 degrees in Boston at 518.
14: WBUR supporters include Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis, Master's in Clinical Mental Health Counseling. Whether you prefer typical academic or individualized learning, you'll thrive. Experientially based classes are led by supportive faculty. No GRE required. State licensure eligible. Accepting applications for fall. BGSP.edu.
4: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Rallies outside the Supreme Court in Washington today after the court decided to allow the use of the abortion drug Mifepristone at least until next week, while it considers a ruling by a federal judge in Texas that restricted the FDA's approval of that drug. The Biden administration asked the court to intervene. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kushida has been evacuated unharmed after someone threw an explosive device at a campaign event in a western port city just minutes before he was to begin his speech. This nine months after former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated while delivering a campaign speech. And Rutgers University reached a framework to end the first strike in the school's 257-year history. It includes pay raises. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
14: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Peacock, with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs, from hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com. Slash NPR. This is NPR.
0: This is all things considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadborny. Late Friday, the Supreme Court put a brief hold on a lower court ruling that restricts access to Mifepristone. The abortion drug that's been the flashpoint over abortion access in the US. The hold, which remains in effect until April 19th means the status quo remains in effect until then, meaning mifepristone will remain as accessible as it's always been. But across the country, access to abortion is being restricted in other ways, like laws that ban when a pregnant person can seek one. Joining us to talk about this and to bring us the story of one person who has recently been personally affected by these shifting abortion laws is NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin. Hey, Selena. Hi, Alyssa. OK, so your story today takes us to the South. And Florida's new law could have a
15: big impact there. Tell us more about that. So right now, Florida has a 15-week ban. And that has been challenged in court and is now before the state's Supreme Court. So this new law would only take effect 30 days after the decision in that case. So there is no change for now. Okay. But it's still really big news because Florida is an enormous state. More than 20 million people live there. And even with the 15-week restriction that's been in place, it's where people in southern states have been able to go for access. Mm. So to be clear, if a six-week ban does take effect, that would mean very few people could get care practically because many people don't even realize they're pregnant that early.
0: Right. And, and there has been some conversations around when pregnancy even starts kind of like when the clock is ticking for these very early bans. You worked on a project about that.
15: Yeah. We just put out a visual guide to early pregnancy, and it gets into the details of fertilization and implantation and exactly how that works and what's happening there because it is a hot topic right now, both in court cases and in new laws that are getting passed around the country. You
0: focused your reporting on the way that these abortion restrictions have changed people's lives in a series called Days and
15: Weeks. Yes. What have you covered so far? Right. So, so far we had stories from people in Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Texas, and many of them have had pregnancy complications. Some people are just trying to figure out when or if to have children. Um, many people wrote us through a form we have at NPR.org. We've actually just created a new call-out asking for people's personal experiences with Mifepristone. And the story I'm bringing today came through that call-out, or the original call-out. It was actually a dad who wrote in about his daughter.
0: Mm, okay, because we've had a lot of stories about adults, right? Yes.
15: So this story is about a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, Teenagers are affected by abortion bans, too, because teenagers can get pregnant, too. And I should say that this story will mention sexual violence, so warning about that. It is about how the abortion ban in Georgia, also a six-week ban, changed the life of one teenage girl. Hey, babe. Hi.
4: How was practice?
15: Juliet is 15 and in ninth grade. She's got a lot going on. She's learning to drive, serious about marching band, she's taking two AP classes, and she plays tennis. Last October, her dad picked her up in his truck after practice.
16: How do you feel like you're measuring up?
15: One thing Juliet is not doing is dating or having sex. I think right now I'm definitely not
6: interested in being sexually active. I mean, I know my friends, some of my friends are sexually active, and I just don't think it's interesting.
15: NPR is only using Juliet's first name to protect her privacy as a minor talking about her sexual health. Last June, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, a six-week abortion ban took effect in Georgia. There's an exception for rape, but only with a police report. After the ban took effect, Juliet's mom brought up birth control.
9: I wanted to make sure that Juliet was aware of options and opportunities for birth control through, like, the health department and local clinics for her friends.
15: But she noticed something. Her daughter seemed anxious and stressed. Soon, Juliet told her mom she wanted to start on birth control, too.
6: I don't think that it was ever expected that I would want birth control, but I just didn't want to have to be so worried about, um, like, if I ever did get raped, which I hope it doesn't happen, but if it ever does happen and I wasn't on birth control, there would be a chance that I would have to keep a baby.
15: She thought her mom would say no. She'd brought it up before and was told to wait until she was sexually active because of the side effects, especially the hormonal changes that can affect mood. Here's her mom.
9: She experienced COVID all of middle school. That hit at the end of sixth grade. She hit some really, really rough, depressive patches. And and I I was scared to death of what that could do to her emotionally. She thinks part of the context
15: for Juliet's reaction to the new abortion restrictions was her own experience.
9: When I was 15, I had an abortion. And that's something that Juliet's known about for a long time. And that's always kind of been a part of our family conversations about sex and sexuality. And, and so I think that that's a part of the, her response to Roe v. Wade as well is just that it's not an abstract concept for her
15: the idea of sexual violence isn't an abstract concept either for many young women. A recent survey from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found 18% of young girls reported they had been the victim of sexual violence in the past year. Still, Juliet's mom wanted to understand why her daughter, who is not yet sexually active, wanted to start on birth control to guard against pregnancy from a possible rape. So they sat down and talked about it.
9: Are you? afraid of being raped like to what degree is that a real fear in your mind
6: i mean i think it's a real i think it's a pretty big fear and like every girl my age because i was at my friend's house and we took a walk and every time like a car driven by a man just slowed down next to us we both got scared so do you it's a thing i think about every day i think that's a
15: It's kind of a sad way to grow up. Juliet's dad had complicated feelings too. He says the nation's current political reality put them in this situation.
13: It's terribly sad and horrifying that this is the conversations we have to have at this age.
15: But Juliet's parents understood the right to abortion going away really shook her.
6: I feel like after everything happened, I just wanted to be a little in control.
15: After lots of family discussions, it was decided. Juliet would start on birth control. They took her to a teen clinic and considered the options, including an IUD, a long-acting birth control option.
6: The nurse at the clinic says that it makes more sense for me to get like a more temporary thing.
15: But I don't think I'd be good with pills because I'm not good with pills right now. The implant option scared her, so she ended up choosing Depo-Provera, a shot administered at the clinic that lasts for three months. As soon as she got her first shot in July, she says, she felt a bit better. I feel more protected. I feel like it's just
6: a a thing where I don't have to worry about it as much. Like
9: I don't have to think about it as much.
15: Juliet's mom is less enthusiastic.
9: My big fear with Depo specifically. Was that it would alter her mood and there would be nothing we could do about it. And that has happened. It absolutely has, incontrovertibly. Juliet says it's true
15: that in the week after she gets the shot, she gets really emotional. It affects her sleep and appetite. Her period has also stopped. And getting the shots has been challenging logistically. She once even had to miss school and have a family friend take her because the clinic's hours are so tricky. Here's her dad.
13: So it just seems like challenge after challenge being heaped on young girls.
15: But Juliet thinks it's still worth it. The side effects are bad, but I think for
6: one week, well, obviously it's easier for me to be like really depressed for one week than to have a baby. But that's not like a comparison that I should use. But I think that if I have this
15: opportunity, then I should take it. Her mom notes Juliet is kind of in the best position possible.
9: You know, she's got amenable parents with the means and the transportation to get her where she needs to go, the persistence to keep trying to do it. She feels comfortable talking to us. Like, this is, in a in a really crappy situation, the best-case scenario.
15: She worries about teenagers across Georgia, let alone teenagers in other states that restrict abortion, who don't have any of those things. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Dozens of people
0: who will step up to the starting line at Monday's Boston Marathon are survivors of the bombing that took place 10 years ago today. Many who experienced trauma that day find healing not just in running, but in running Boston again.
10: GBH's Mark Herz reports. With days left to go before the marathon, 33-year-old bombing survivor Robert Wheeler is at the start of a 13-mile training run along the Charles River. He says running keeps his stress down.
3: On a more deeper emotional level, it just allows the repetitive steps, repetitive motion and while at the same time exerting yourself, allows you just to filter through and process things.
10: Wheeler was a 23-year-old first-time marathon competitor in 2013. He crossed the finish line, then the blasts happened. Kneeling in broken glass, he took off his shirt to tourniquet a fellow survivor's leg. He's scarred by that day emotionally, and he's also suffered through some hearing loss and traumatic brain injury from proximity to the explosions. Athletes, as he puts it, have a fire inside them, and he says often those with trauma have a little more.
3: You can use that fire to burn down the house, or you can use that fire to feed your soul and and build yourself up. And getting out there for me doing the run helps me accept things that
12: really aren't acceptable when you're running your emotions your physical body are all aligned
10: shamila khan is a psychologist who specializes in trauma at boston medical center she treated many of the boston marathon bombing survivors for years
12: it's a good way of expressing and letting out your emotions without using words Um, so it's common for people to engage in physical activities to work through challenges that may be emotional in nature, psychological in nature.
10: Khan says in general, running can increase levels of certain brain chemicals that boost a person's ability to handle stress and improve their mood. She says one of the hallmarks of trauma is avoiding emotions, even becoming emotionally numb. And she says it's likely that a decade of continuing to run, including even returning to the Boston finish line where the bombings happened, has helped some survivors. Audrey Rennie was at the finish line that day. We've always loved to run. It's always been um, a positive in our life, so
0: there was no reason to give it up.
10: Rennie was with her husband Steve and younger daughter Jillian, waiting to see her older daughter complete her race when the bombs went off. Jillian nearly lost her legs, but after a long recovery, she can join her parents for a run. The Rennies started a nonprofit in conjunction with Brigham and Women's Hospital where Jillian was treated. For Audrey Rennie, the memories are still intense, but raising money for trauma research has helped. For our family, it
0: was a way for us to start to move uh, forward into what now, 10 years later, is a decade of um, progress
10: and um, hopefulness. On Monday, Audrey Rennie's husband and older daughter Danielle will run the race together. Robert Wheeler says running another Boston Marathon will mean facing some of the things that still haunt him.
3: There's that last mile or two. It's always emotional. I'm always lost inside my own head. And a million memories kind of rubbing against you, but at the same time,
10: when you finish that, it's freeing. Wheeler says running the Boston Marathon contributes to a feeling of purpose for him, and that he believes a man with purpose can do unbelievable things. For NPR News, I'm Mark Hers in Boston.
0: From connecting with Taylor Swift's heartbreak to hanging on to Beyonce's every word. Psychologists say some one-sided bonds serve a purpose.
15: These relationships are real. They fill the need that we have for interpersonal connection.
0: Tomorrow on Weekend Edition, a closer look at parasocial relationships. You can listen to that story tomorrow on the radio or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. listening to NPR news tax day is around the corner. Perhaps like us, you have some questions about what you owe or where to go for help. So we reached out to Andy Rosen. He writes about taxes and investing for nerd wallet, a personal finance site. We asked him about common personal tax mistakes and misconceptions. And he told us about one he confronts every year.
13: One of the major mistakes people make is just not keeping records of things that they might need to have to prove to the IRS that what they're claiming on their tax forms is true. This is key because documents make a difference. So, for instance, maybe you have some business income and you didn't save the receipts. Or maybe you made some charitable contributions and didn't keep track of those. These are mistakes that are kind of hard to rectify unless you can go back to the sources of those transactions and get new records.
0: So get access to important documents because they will help you figure out what you owe. And speaking of what someone owes, that leads us to what Rosen says is a common tax misconception.
13: You've probably heard the term marginal tax rate. And the term essentially sounds pretty complicated, but what it actually is is just the top rate you paid generally. It's the tax paid on the last dollar of taxable income. He breaks down what he means. Pretty much everyone pays at least some tax in the lowest tax bracket, which is 10%. Whether you made $11,000 or $1 billion in taxable income, you'd probably pay 10% tax on that first bit of income. The difference is that as your income goes up, additional money you made gets taxed at a higher rate. Say you made enough to move you from the 10 to 12% bracket, but only by making $1 above the threshold. You'd pay 12 cents on that extra dollar and 10 cents on every other dollar you made. Another misconception,
0: tax credits versus tax deductions.
13: A deduction just reduces the amount of income you have to pay tax on. So whatever the size of that deduction, only percentage of that is gonna come off of your tax bill. A credit, on the other hand, is a one-to-one reduction. As a result,
0: Rosen says that credits are a more powerful tool for taxpayers.
13: So say you owe the government $5,000. You get a $1,000 tax credit, that cuts your bill to $4,000. And depending on the size and the type of the tax credit you're using, You could even turn a bill into a refund. And while we're on the topic of refunds, Rosen says
0: pay attention to yours because it could be a signal.
13: It might feel nice to get a refund, but if you're getting a big surprise, including a refund or a big bill, it's a sign that you might want to go back to your tax withholding forms and revisit what you're paying to try to get it closer to the amount that you wound up owing.
0: Now, Rosen stresses that no one tax situation is the same. So getting professional guidance, even this
13: close to tax day, can help. If you have simple taxes, maybe just a W-2, and you're taking the standard deduction, that could be different than if your taxes are more complicated. Say your life circumstances have changed, you earned income or lived in multiple states, you're working for yourself and have business income. Then it might be worth thinking about getting someone to help out. But that said... There's a price of peace of mind, and even if you do have simple taxes, you might find that talking to an expert helps you reduce your anxiety over the potential for a mistake or an audit. And if that's not possible, there are free resources. In general, there's lots of places on the Internet, including the IRS website, that aim to explain things as clearly as possible. Look, taxes can be complicated, but in the end, just think about it in a very broad way. Essentially, you're trying to tell the government what you owe, and then figure out how much of it is subject to tax and find different programs that can reduce how much of your income is subject to tax. All of this is going around that simple question.
0: That's Andy Rosen. He writes about investing and taxes for NerdWallet, the personal finance website.
13: This
8: is NPR News. And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Join Science Friday on Tuesday, April 18th at City Space for a free science fair with educators, engineers, and scientists all researching our natural world. To find solutions to climate change, go to WBUR.org slash events. Coming up at 6, it's been a minute. 53 degrees in Boston at 539. Stay with us. You're listening to All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. A astreetframes.com Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. cambridgeculinary.com And... Celebrity Series presenting the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra with Wynton Marsalis, a big band experience at Symphony Hall April 21st. Celebrityseries.org.
4: Widespread fighting erupted today in Sudan between army units and a paramilitary group. A doctors group in the country says several people were killed. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the US is concerned but the parties should continue to work toward a transition of power. France's Constitutional Council yesterday approved an unpopular plan to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. The country's main labor unions are calling for a mass protest on May 1st, International Workers' Day. And thousands are in Indianapolis this weekend for the annual convention of the National Rifle Association. Former President Trump, a current candidate, told the gathering he'd be their loyal friend and fearless champion. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
14: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global communities make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com bankingforbusiness. And from the University at Buffalo, working with the National Science Foundation to address a shortage of speech-language pathologists through artificial intelligence, More at buffalo.edu slash NPR.
0: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadwarni. Widespread fighting has broken out between two factions of the military in the East African country of Sudan, leaving at least 25 people dead, according to Reuters. The sound of gunfire, explosions and the roar of military jets have been reverberating across Sudan's capital Khartoum since early this morning. Gunshots were even heard on air during a broadcast on state television. The news presenter was telling his audience the situation was calm there, but at that very moment, gunfire could be heard in the background. Violence has reportedly broken out in other parts of the country as well. Tensions in Sudan have been escalating in recent weeks as a scheduled deadline for the transfer of military rule to civilian government expired a few days ago. People have been told to stay inside as rivalries between ruling military factions spilled over into full-scale violence. The U.S. ambassador tweeted he and his staff were sheltering in place as the capital city went into effective lockdown. Journalist Zainab Mohamed Saleh joins us from Khartoum now. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you for having me. So it's late in the evening in Khartoum right now. Can you describe to us just what the day's events were like, how it unfolded, and, and what the latest situation is?
17: Clashes between the Sudan Armed Forces and the paramilitaries, the Rapid Support Forces, erupted around the sports city in south of Khartoum, uh, which is not too far from the capital, from the airport, and around nine a.m. basically, and then they quickly spread to different parts of the city. The Wrapped Support Forces announced earlier that they controlled the airport and the presidential palace, and they were trying to get into the, they said, they, they claimed that they controlled over the military HQ as well.
0: So this confrontation between
17: the two sides of the
0: military has been predicted by many. I mean, can you remind our audience just how we got to this point?
17: It started when the army the security sector, including the Army and the RSF, were having a power-sharing deal with the civilians. So in that deal, there is supposed to be um, something on integrating the RSF into the Army. And the RSF suggested the integration should be in, within 10 years. The Army insisted insisted it to be in two years. So that is the main reason for them to to reach to this point, um, to fight the rebellion in Darfur that was started in 2003, where the the RSF they used to be called the Janjaweed militia they had been accused of committing genocide and war and uh, crimes against humanity and war crimes and then they had like a military uh, sorry they had a, a power sharing deal with the civilians who led the protests against al bashir and we had two years of um, a transitional towards democracy uh, for two years and then the army and the RSF together, they made, uh, they interrupted that transition by a coup in October 2021. In order to get back to the transitional period, the international community, uh, the USA, the UK, and all supported a, um, a new power-sharing deal, which is uh, which was supposed to be done by the 11th of April, a few days ago.
0: Zainab Saleh is joining us from Khartoum, the city of Khartoum, which has seen heavy fighting all day today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you.
17: Thank you so much for having me.
0: On tomorrow's program, how does the war in Ukraine impact some of the country's most vulnerable? For the past eight months, I've been following one class of kindergartners torn apart by war. Some stayed in Ukraine, and others fled with their families. Tomorrow is the story of two friends from that class in Kharkiv, one who went to Spain, the other to the U.S. We'll hear their story and how I was able to tell it. That's tomorrow on All Things Considered. This week saw devastating flash floods sweep across parts of South Florida. Fort Lauderdale was hit especially hard, with more than two feet of rain falling in a 24-hour period. The historic flooding has pushed many residents out of their homes. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis declared a state of emergency this week, as did the city and Broward County. Gerard Albert III of member station WLRN reports from South Florida.
16: Elijah Manley was working near downtown on Wednesday when he got a text from his mother. She warned him not to come home.
5: She said the whole house is flooded, the whole neighborhood is flooded, there are- people like climbing on their cars.
16: I reached him by phone Friday morning as he was still trying to make it home. Manley lives about four miles northwest of downtown Fort Lauderdale. The neighborhood is predominantly black and floods frequently, but Manly says it's never been this bad. He booked a hotel and tried to get a ride from a friend, but the waters were too deep on the road. So he got out and walked.
17: And I had to like walk literally threw
2: like water up to my chest.
16: He ended up sleeping near the train tracks where several others congregated outside a concert venue. Fort Lauderdale Mayor Dean Trantalis said Friday that the city was housing about 40 people in a shelter downtown.
11: This is a disaster akin to a hurricane strike.
16: Trantalis said pump trucks are the city's biggest need. Crews have been working to clear roadways and check infrastructure like power stations and roads. The city and county are working together to help residents who were flooded out of their homes.
7: Water may not be over your head, but it's up to your knees and there's still damage.
16: Manley was already planning to move to a high-rise apartment in downtown before the flooding. Now, he says he's thankful he'll be on the 30th floor.
7: Like, I don't even feel safe living on the ground level anywhere
5: because if something like this was to happen again, it would destroy all your stuff.
16: Manley's family spent the night in the flooded house. They unplugged appliances and mostly stayed on their beds that were high enough to avoid the water rushing in. They've since rented a hotel room and hope the city can pump out enough water for them to return home and assess the damages soon. For NPR News, I'm Gerard Albert III in Fort Lauderdale.
0: As we just heard, severe flooding in Fort Lauderdale has caused massive damage to many people's homes. With extreme storms and flooding becoming more common, we wanted to know if this is affecting the housing market in South Florida. So we called real estate broker Wendy Newman Shepke. She sells properties in Fort Lauderdale and across South Florida. And she said, storms are a way of life.
2: We live in a beautiful place. You know, We live where people vacation, but with that comes Big nature, big storms.
0: But this particular storm that hit Fort Lauderdale with over two feet of rain in one day is causing some homeowners to reconsider their zip code.
2: As I was checking in on my clients that live in the affected areas, there are a few of them that are kind of done um, and they will be putting their houses on the market after they do the repairs.
0: And selling a previously flooded house is a lot of work.
2: First of all, uh, disclosures have to be made. We have to disclose material defects that affect the home, um, whether that's roof leaks, whether that's flooding. And in terms of marketing the house, um, you know, it really is, it's a little tough sometimes. A lot of these houses will be teardowns and rebuilt. And when they're rebuilt, they'll be built back you know, stronger with the new codes. Um, But some of these houses, believe it or not, that flooded are built with, you know, acceptable building codes, with newer roofs, with impact windows. It just depends on where they lie in elevation.
0: But despite the severe weather risks and potentially expensive home repairs, Wendy doesn't see it affecting the housing market too much.
2: South Florida market is very different than the rest of the country. We are generally always busy. So there's always somebody that's going to want the house. We go through the disasters and then we build back. And every time, you know, it happens, the the houses are stronger, the houses are built better, the houses are built higher.
0: So if you're considering buying in South Florida, here's some advice.
2: Oh, never. Never 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 you never waive your inspection. You may shorten it, but you always want that opportunity to inspect the house and make sure that um, everything is what it's supposed to be.
0: That was real estate broker Wendy Newman-Shepke of Royal Palm Realty of South Florida. La Santa Cecilia is an LA band that plays rock and pop and a wide range of traditional Mexican music. They're celebrating 15 years playing together, with a new album called Cuatro Copas. The recording sessions took place at a country estate in Baja, California. Beto Arcos was there and has the story.
7: As the sun goes down in Baja's Valle de Guadalupe, Mexico's wine country, members of La Santa Cecilia, their close friends, and a few special guests gather around the bonfire. The band is playing and singing Mexican rancheras, some ballads and boleros, love songs such as this one called Poquita Fe. Yo
5: sé que siempre dudas de mi amor. No te culpo.
7: Lead singer La Marisol says many of the songs in this album are part of their personal history, growing up in downtown L.A., surrounded by Mexican musicians who taught them how to sing and play. I didn't really learn this music
5: from recordings. I learned it from, from live musicians playing on the street. Entonces, some of these songs are songs that we've loved to interpret from way back when we were, before La Santa Cecilia, no, when we were Marisol y los Hermanos Carlos singing on the weekends at Placita,
7: singing at, at weddings, at quinceañeras and things like that. This is the band's own quinceañera, a festive and joyous celebration of their 15 years together, playing the music they love. It's a live recording. Under the music, you can hear the sound of crickets, birds, and a light breeze. The vibe here can be best described as a bohemian night filled with music, conversation, and yes, some imbibing too. Hence the album's title, "Cuatro Copas, Bohemia en la Finca Altosano," four drinks, bohemia at the Altosano estate. Guitarist and accordionist Pepe Carlos says the album includes songs that were inherited by by our parents while they were listening to at home or or songs called, like Pescadores de Ensenada, De Los Caetes de Linares. We were listening to all this music at home. So I think it's, it, it's also a bridge between our parents, our roots musically. As a band, La Santa Cecilia has been an ideal vehicle for the musicians to experiment with all kinds of American and Latin music. They've played everything from rock to cumbia, pop tunes and ballads, and they've recorded albums in English, Spanish and Spanglish. Singer La Marisol says there's nothing like singing songs with friends around the fire. I love being on the stage, I love being on tour,
5: I love being on the road, I love playing festivals, like Vive Latino and all that stuff, but there's just something about getting together with your friends and just singing music and just enjoying music in its simplest form, you know? With the guitar, no? Con un mezcalito and sin más, no? Yo que fui del amor a de Yo que fui mariposa de mil flores.
7: This album opens a window into the band's personal lives. It's a glimpse of how the group thrives and creates community, says percussionist Miguel Ramirez
5: and it's so cool to be able to just be like this is who we are this is how we live this is what we do for fun this is what we do for enjoyment and we hope that you know you get to be a part of it through this record you know
7: For this special celebration, the band invited a few guest singers, such as Patricio Hidalgo, a Son Jarocho artist from Mexico's Gulf state of Veracruz. The Grammy winning musician says he's impressed by the band's natural ability to play and record music at the spur of the moment. It's astonishing how the band can be so laid back
5: and play so relaxed. Everything you will hear in this recording was done right here, live. There was no such a thing as reaching an agreement, previous rehearsal, or music arrangement.
7: Bass player Alex Bendaña says this album is a testament to the band's resilience, being together as a family, making music
11: for 15 years. I think it's very rare for bands who start off in L.A. and like end up with an amazing career. Every year was a different experience of evolution, you know, in the band, or or, or our individual persons, you know. We were always growing together.
7: La Santa Cecilia recently performed to thousands of adoring fans at Mexico City's Vive Latino, the country's biggest music festival. Speaking emotionally and tearing up, singer La Marisol says after 15 years trying to connect to audiences in Mexico with their music. Feeling that love and feeling that, that appreciation and that connection with our brothers and
5: sisters, with our motherland, Con Mexico. That makes me feel very proud, very grateful to be able to live this moment and share our story with people No, now.
7: Next month, La Santa Cecilia embarks on a countrywide tour with stops in san antonio chicago new york and wolf trap in virginia for npr news i'm beto arcos